0: This is Paradoxical, the podcast about the psychology behind big success in small business. I'm your host, Steve McCready, and today's a fun episode for me because I am going to be interviewing somebody who I have followed online for a long time and whose work was instrumental in helping me make my career pivot. As I started shifting from psychotherapy to coaching a number of years ago, uh, her book pivot, uh, was one of the tools that I referred to quite a bit. And so I'm grateful that Jenny Blake has taken the time to join me on the podcast here. I'm really, really happy to have the opportunity to talk to author, podcaster, sub stacker and all kinds of other great stuff. Jenny Blake, Jenny, thank you so much for coming on. It is great to be able to connect with you here.
1: Well, it's my treat to be here and paradoxical. I mean, is there any better name for a podcast, especially one about creativity and business? I just love it. So thank you for having me.
0: It actually came as much as anything for me trying to find a title that hadn't been taken already. (laughs) And it turned out that like no one had used it. I was like, oh, and it fits so well about business. So perfect.
1: And I just feel like any advice from anyone about anything really should be a paradox, like, oh, take this advice. uh, But at the same time, the exact opposite could easily be true. And so (laughs) I love that even though we'll be talking about things and it may come across that I know something about something. It's like, but yes, and it's always a paradox. There's always multiple truths or multiple ways it could be possible or things that I share that won't work for you and vice versa. And so I love that it's just baked into the premise here.
0: Awesome. Thank you. So for those who may not be aware of you, I suspect a lot of folks are, but give us a little intro about uh, your background, who you are, and what you do.
1: Well, I love that you included author, podcaster, and substacker in my intro. I like to say that I run a delightfully tiny media company. I've been self-employed for 12 years and it primarily does take the form of podcasting. I have two shows, Pivot and Free Time. I have three books, and now I've moved all my newsletters over to Substack. My latest project is called Rolling in Dough: Divine Disaster Diaries from a Breadwinning Business Owner Living in New York City. So that's me. The crux of what I do is one to many, sharing online out loud, as I've done for 18 years. And yes, I have had different business models along that journey and different types of clients and services, but at the heart of it, it's going through something reflecting on it, ideally simplifying or systematizing, or at least just sharing openly about it and then putting it back out into the world.
0: I will, I mean, I'll have obviously links or, well, now it's great because I can, it's pretty much all linked in one place now, which makes it very convenient, but I'll have links in the in the show notes, but I I can recommend uh, all of of Jenny's stuff. One of the things I'm gonna gonna ask about is how you manage all of this, but so many different things, but all really cool. And I actually first became aware of Jenny when I uh, encountered her book, Pivot, an older book of hers, when I was really beginning the work of transitioning from psychotherapy to coaching, and it was a really helpful tool for me in that. But her more recent book, which is what I wanna talk a little bit more about actually today, is called Free Time. And if you want a reference or a resource for how to do more with less and keep your life from being really crazy or hectic, if you're a solo or small business owner, this is a great reference. And related to that, Jenny, what I want to ask you is for you in your business, I'm curious, what are the tools from the book that you find most impactful or helpful for you and really juggling all the things that you do because you're doing like Again, so many different things.
1: Yeah, it's a lot. What's interesting is I have no full-time team members, including myself. So what's very important to me is that any form my business takes needs to have the minimum viable team, as few people involved as possible. Because the moment I start expanding, I don't have fun anymore. (laughs) Expanding in terms of infrastructure, overhead, and that level of complexity, it's just not for me. And I've learned that the hard way. So, I would say one thing that I definitely live precisely what I preach and teach is systems and capturing. Like, nothing about the business should live in anybody's mind, not the owner, not the team members. I power my operations with Notion. That's where I live. And Notion for me replaced Docs, Sheets, Evernote, Airtable, Asana, Google Forms, everything. So, everything lives in Notion, and I document absolutely everything. It doesn't matter the date I send an invoice, the date I sign a contract, a template email I might reuse, how to run different elements of the business, a whole checklist when I was doing the big substack migration. It's all there. And what's so important about that is the Fiji test. So that's another thing that I've really lived for these last 12 years. Instead of asking if I got hit by a bus over and over, what would happen? Because it's so violent. Very dramatic. Yeah, I didn't like, I would have asked myself that now hundreds, if not thousands of times. Instead, I just say, if me or anyone on the team suddenly got whisked to Fiji with no devices and no ability to give notice, could anyone else on the team seamlessly step in and do the work? And what's important about that, even for really small operations, delightfully tiny teams, is that it takes pressure off of the business owner from being the bottleneck. And the only one who knows how to do things, because at least if it's documented, you can ask for help when you need it. And if you step aside or you get sick or you go on vacation or you need a break, you're not the one getting in the way of progress. So that's another philosophy that has really served me well. And it also helps reduce friction when you have team turnover. Because one thing that really annoys me is repeating myself. And it annoys me if I think that every time I hire a new team member, I'm going to have to just teach all the exact same things again. So when somebody's working with me, even if they're part-time, I always ask, please document every single thing that we talk about. And if you have a question about how to do your job, Ask me, but then document the answer so that the next person won't have to ask that same question.
0: This is something I want to ask you a little bit more about because I'm someone who is admittedly not the best at documenting everything, but <laughs> I've heard from people for years about that, right? You just document everything And because my brain's always like, yeah, when am I ever going to need that bit of info again? But mostly because it seems like such a large uh, effort on the front end for not necessarily a lot on the back end. I'm curious for you, was that something that you had to talk or work yourself into doing? And how have you managed to convince yourself that it actually is a good investment of your time and energy?
1: With the right software, it gets a lot easier. So before Notion existed, I used to get, like most things I do comes from getting annoyed. (laughs) So I used to get annoyed that the information of how to run the business was in a 50 page Google doc that was really slow to load. That annoyed me. So even though I knew that I was happy to have information documented, that kind of came naturally because, again, I just didn't want to keep repeating myself. I hate wasting time. And when you don't have things documented or well-organized, you end up wasting a lot of time looking for things or recreating things, redoing things. That also creates friction. And it also leads to a sense of burnout and overwhelm and bottlenecks and bureaucracy in the business because your team can't find things. They're not necessarily self-sufficient. So I guess I've always seen the benefits of doing it, but the software now makes it so much easier. And that's partly why I created the free time operations dashboard, because I know that not everyone is a systems geek and loves software like me. So I tried to create a done for you dashboard that even if you weren't going to build it from scratch, from a blinking cursor on a blank page, You could have the structure for a small business to then fill in the blanks and customize it for the type of business you're running. So to your question, Steve, I would say if you're someone who's kind of resistant to this, yes, there is some starting friction of getting going, but pretty soon it will become a habit and you will start to find that you're so glad that it exists. I think you will start to notice the intrinsic benefits because the mark of a good system is that it's harder not to use it. I don't really do anything in my business. I mean, accounting, <laughs> bookkeeping. I mean, there are certain things that I don't enjoy, but that I know it would make my life harder if I didn't do them. And this is one. So I would never recommend software or a system that you put all this effort into and doesn't make your life immeasurably better. That's when systems are really working and flowing. It's like, oh, now, I've, now that I've done this, I can't live without it.
0: I think one of the things that I've, really seen from from you and from free time is how much that getting really to a point where you can make that investment of the time energy effort to get things set up and really focusing on what that's going to give you has some tremendous dividends from the standpoint of freeing you time effort energy and creating efficiency
1: yeah and you can start with the area of your business that's the most Broken. You know, I think if you try to do the whole thing at once, it will be overwhelming and it will feel like a big time drain. But if you find something that's currently creating a lot of friction, it's dragging you down, it's weighing you down, it's on your mind, you're actually like, kind of anxious or losing sleep about it. That's really ripe for some problem solving. And email is just a never ending example But instead of working in your inbox, you can work on the process, meaning what Gmail filters or I use Gmail, what filters and labels can you do? What very frequent responses can you save? I use text expander for those for saving things that I might type commonly, you know, so there are ways to kind of zoom out and say what I I call it the wall. There's usually 20 to 50 emails absolutely stuck in my inbox, just sitting there, languishing. That's what I call the wall. And I will often take screenshots of the wall and try to understand why, why are these stuck here? Is it indecision? Is it guilt? Sometimes I know I probably want to say no to someone or a request, but I don't know how, or I feel bad doing it. And so it sits there or sometimes, and I hate to admit this, sometimes someone will send a really wonderful email and it's, eight or 10 paragraphs long, but then I want to write back with such thought and care. And so it just sits there day after day, week after week. And so you asked what I live with free time. I also live a lot of the permission slips. You hereby have permission to be bad at email or be slow at email. So I don't pride myself on being a fast email responder and I don't want to be. Most things will have to wait a week or two. That's just how I am. I put the snail back into email. But what I do feel determined to get better at is the level of overwhelm that the email inboxes, there's inboxes everywhere now, creates in my life. And the way that I do that is by working on the process, not just in the task.
0: So one of the things that I want to talk about that you referenced here is because to do things like this, to recognize, oh my gosh, there's this wall, which uh, I can I can relate to. I have those things. It's like, that thing's just stuck there. And I keep looking at it and I keep like kicking it to the curb and I'll come back to it later. But for you, How have you found as far as what you do to create the space to do that zooming out? Because that's, I think, the thing where people, what they don't do zooming out, thinking about what do we need to do from a system standpoint or from a process standpoint to deal with what we're seeing as these workflow issues or other kinds of things. So do you have any kind of a, a set process for that or how do you go about doing that?
1: One of the most important things is I don't schedule calls on Monday or Friday with very rare exception. So Mondays and Fridays should have nothing on them. And then Tuesdays are usually business meetings. Wednesdays are for podcasting, usually me interviewing for my shows. And then Thursdays might be team meetings, catching up with friends, or if I'm on someone else's podcast. It doesn't always happen that precisely, but what that allows me to do is that I know I have at least two days of the week. And if you're a business owner, you know that sometimes you lean on the weekends too. <laughs> or at least I do. I kind of love the weekends sometimes. Not always, but I love when it's quiet and no one else is really that active and there's not a lot of inbound. So if you can take a quiet day, there's even within Gmail, you can say like in inbox older than one day so that you put that in your search filter so that you don't even see what's coming in that day. You're just dealing with what came in before. But it's really important to have these no meeting days because Those are the ones where you can zoom out a little bit. Whereas if you are just jumping from one thing to the next, Monday through Friday, it's total chaos. Your energy is all over the place. You're probably exhausted by the end of every day. And by the time the weekend comes, for sure, you got to take that time off. And so for me, having more like a four-day weekend and then three days of calls and people energy, that is what preserves my energy. I've had to work really hard at this. It didn't come naturally right away. But preserves my energy to really work on the business and show up as my best, most strategic thinking self, not just reacting and chasing what other people are wanting or doing.
0: I think this is such an important point here. This creating of really boundaries is what you're talking about, or another way we could we could put it, and creating these boundaries around your time and when you do things or when you don't do things, right? So it's it's like I don't do this here. I think for a lot of people, they really get anxious about doing that, that, well, I I have to, have to be more available and that can happen with any number of things. So I'm curious for you, how did you sell yourself on the idea of, you know, Wednesdays is for podcast or I don't do meetings on this day. How did you get yourself to take the leap of doing it? Number one. And then number two, to a point of finding some peace and really embracing that, like, this is really a, a better way of doing things
1: usually just comes from feeling really drained and then trying to understand why. So even parameters like I've noticed back when I used to do one-on-one coaching, I could do three calls in a day, but not four. And I also realized I much preferred to do them all on the same day rather than spread out throughout the week. Because again, the context switching of the type of energy, it was too tough for me to all of a sudden just snap into this deep listening coaching mode and then snap back out to something else. And so I started to, just through experimenting, realize that I did really well when I had clients that I met with twice a month on A-weeks and C-weeks and on Thursdays, for example, or let's say in those days, Wednesday and Thursday. And if I had five clients, I would invoice them on monthly retainer, the first of every month. And I knew I was only meeting with coaching clients on Wednesdays and Thursdays, on A-weeks and C-weeks. By doing that, I corralled and was able to harness my energy to really show up on those days and have my full energy. And I knew, let's say I had five clients at nine ninety seven a month. I also knew that on the first of every month, I was sending those five invoices automatically recurring through my invoicing software. That's important. And I could know, oh, if I have five clients, that means I'm earning $5,000 a month. Whereas previously, when I went through coach training in 2008, everybody was doing Time-bound coaching or project-based three-session package, six-session package, three-month package, six-month, nine-month package. And it was just the friction. I never knew how many clients I needed, who I was billing when, who was finishing when. It was just stressful. So everything that I create comes from solving for my stress. And that's really what the free time book and free time framework is designed to do. The whole diagnostic question where you start is where are you in friction and where are you in flow? And I just, for me personally, just kept noticing friction of not knowing how much I was earning, what my true capacity was for clients, when it served me and them best to meet and have some consistency. And so doing things like monthly recurring billing, set it and forget it. I never had to think about it again. And that goes to the free time mantra. What small steps can you take today that free your time far into the future? It wasn't just easier for me. I didn't have to remember who I was invoicing and when and for how much, but also for my clients, they were really clear. Oh, the invoice arrives for the same amount on the same day, once a month. And by the way, we have a recurring day and time on the calendar. Even if we have to move a session on a one-off basis as needed, we didn't have this friction of like them having to look at a calendar tool, figure out when their next call was going to be, forget to do it, need a reminder, and having things be so scattershot. It actually freed up their time and energy too. To have it be consistent and recurring.
0: I love what you're saying about that one, the one piece, where are you in friction? Where are you in flow? I think that's one of the key ideas from the book. Cause I think what often people get focused on is where are they in fear? <laughs> and that's not Good one. necessarily,
1: Another F. Yes.
0: Yeah, but, but, but that's not necessarily a great place to work from because it often gets you making fear-based choices. Like, Doing things like creating too much availability or too much flexibility, even though that will create, of course, all kinds of chaos and and such versus what you're talking about of really watching for the friction and flow and knowing, like, knowing how many calls a day can you do, like you talked about. And so I think that that's a a really, really important shift for people to make. You know, when I've done it, it has been very scary for me of like, oh, what's going to happen if I, you know, if I cut this off? Is that going to work? Or if I set this, this limit for you, when, When you're making these sorts of changes and creating these constraints and boundaries, is there an element of fear that comes up? And if so, how do you navigate that part of it so you can implement these things?
1: Yes, always. And I'm a lifelong people pleaser type that wants to do what everyone else wants me to do. I'll always think about what other people need before I think about that for myself. So none of this came easily without consideration. But also by the time I was getting so burned out that I couldn't even run my business at all, it just demands a different way of doing things. And I tend to, well, I say my body has me on a short leash. So if I start doing things the wrong way for myself, I get really yanked. So it might be like, Vertigo. Oh, all of a sudden I can't even stand up vertically. I have to lay flat for two days. Oh, a raging ear infection. Ah, okay. What am I not hearing? Like I really get the messages loudly when I need to correct course. So that helps me get over the fear. And I love this diagnostic. Where am I in fear? We could even say the spectrum there is fear. Where am I in fear? Where am I in freedom? And interestingly, I find that my juicy creative work has the most fear. I'm not that afraid to set boundaries with clients or not be available, even if it's a big, fancy corporate client. I'm just not available on the Monday. My next availability is the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or the following week. I don't feel bad anymore. I don't think they care if they if I say I'm not available on the Monday. They don't need to know why. They don't need to know that it's free and clear just because I feel like it. <laughs> That's my business, right. not theirs. And my friend also made a very great point, by the way, that A lot of times corporate clients will, you'll sign a contract or they'll hire you to speak or do something. And then they're like, great, let's set up a weekly recurring sync between now and the event. Well, they have no incentive not to do that because they're getting paid a full-time salary. Whereas if you're a business owner, your time is precious. You cannot set up a weekly recurring sync between now and the event. So I've also learned to be very clear, even when companies pay me, what that comes with, how many phone calls, a pre-event call and a post-event. Follow, that's it. And the event, that's it. Because I've had so much scope creep. So, the fear part, I think it's good to follow the fear if it's at a creative edge, if it's an exciting fear. And if it's a fear of what bad things will happen, like when I stopped being on social media going back to around 2012, 13, I kind of took myself out of it. I was afraid, well, what if I lose my business? I lose my clients. The whole thing shuts down. I just asked myself, what's the worst that could happen? And what's the worst that can happen if I do keep up with this? I knew that if I just spent all day, I just for me, social media is like death by a thousand cuts, like what little snippet can I share today or three times a day and then respond to comments about the snippet of my thought. I would rather hold it all in, collect like a squirrel collecting acorns and then put it into very deep work like the book free time. It might not exist if I had been trying to keep up and stay active on social media in the years leading up to it. So when I have the fear of what could go wrong, I actually also ask, well, what can I fear if I don't make this change? Video podcasting is a great example. Everybody now, I've had podcasts for eight years. Everyone now is like, oh, you have to record on video. You got to be on YouTube. You need to splice it up for social. I cannot stand podcasting on video. It's like, now I have to worry about the lighting. My room, is it clean? How does my hair look? My makeup? What am I wearing? There's so much friction that I would stop podcasting altogether. So I would rather have over 500 episodes and then not follow the shiny shoulds that I have to be on video and be stubborn about it than stop altogether just because I'm chasing what everybody says I should do.
0: I think that's a great example of where we have to really watch out for that, and you really got to ask ourselves some questions, like, what is the actual benefit of adding in the video? Number one, which I'm I'm dubious that there's any benefit because I don't know how many people are sitting and actually watching the right. conversation. it's so
1: boring. It's like it's I don't so I don't need boring. to watch two
0: people talk. It's just yes. like okay, once I've decided that, like, oh, that's a nice setup or whatever. I'm like, okay, cool. Because for me, podcasting or podcasts have always been like a a background activity while I'm cleaning, while I'm, you know, um driving, while I'm doing something, where I'm listening and I don't want the videos a distraction. It's not helpful, number one. But number two, yes, from a production standpoint, this total it fails the eighty twenty rule horribly as far as <laughs> right. I'm concerned. Right. And it's more it takes-
1: expensive, harder to edit. Yes
0: way, way more. I, I actually just, I, I used to have a more elaborate setup for all of my audio video stuff than I have that involved a teleprompter and a mirrorless camera and stuff. So I could be really looking directly at people and have everything all really set up. And I was like, why am I doing this? It's not adding anything actually substantive and it makes my setup way more complicated and a pain in the butt. So yeah, no, I'm done. So I'm with you. I would quit podcasting before I would go to doing video because it just, it's, it doesn't, it fails the eighty twenty test.
1: Yeah. And for me, it's like, even if I thought I could do it, I would start and slowly, but surely, or very quickly, the joy would just start draining. Like there would suddenly be a leak in the boat and all the joy just drains out of that thing until he can't stand it anymore. And it's happened to me where all of a sudden there's just so much thinking involved. And like like you said, the 80-20 does not pass. And I just would start to dread or I would not want to record a solo episode because, oh, the lighting isn't right or my hair doesn't look right. So it's like stupid reasons when what I care about are the ideas. And I'm like mm-hmm. you. I listen on the go. I don't even want somebody's video draining my battery, my phone battery while I'm listening. But that's just me. I'm like good for anyone who, who loves video or who works for them or you even love watching on video. That's cool. I Truly, truly have no judgment for anyone else. I just get very annoyed when people tell me, oh, I need to be doing that or I should be doing that. Or now, even as a guest, every host wants me on video. And it kind of took some of the joy out of being a guest. So I had to start asking, yes, I, I would love to come have a conversation if we can do it audio only. And, you know, every now and then I'll do video if I happen to be booked in the, I do a recording studio in New York once a week. But otherwise, I've given myself permission to at least just ask if it's possible to do it without.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm t- totally with you there because it's not—it's just not worth the effort. This speaks to the idea of intentionality versus reactivity. And fear also gets at that, right? When, when I was talking about getting caught up in fear, we often end up in a reactive mode to what's happening around us or to what we're afraid will happen. And I think your point about Well, what what if I don't do this? I mean, looking, taking is taking fear and starting to take a more intentional look the same way that you're like, well, okay, do I want to do video podcasting? Is it a good deal for me? And that I think that intentionality is probably a really, really key shift for anyone to be able to make because they can really ask the question of what serves and fits me. And that's one of the things I've really seen in watching you and how you work is it really feels like there is a real willingness to structure your time, your work, what you do and how you do it from the standpoint of really just honoring and respecting yourself and being about what works for you and focusing on what's actually the key value piece, I think.
1: Well, I appreciate you saying that. And that's just learning over time. I feel like that's the work we're all doing is trying to figure out what is at our core. What is that super unique work that Each of us can contribute. And then what's the noise around it, around the rest? So, this this I feel is truly the journey of a lifetime. And I only learn it by, again, the hard way what's not working, what gets in the way. And so I keep just trying to clear away, just clear and clear and clear what isn't working, much like that, you know, cliched story of Michelangelo carving carving the statue. It's like the angel is inside. You just have to chip away to get there. And I feel like running a business and figuring out what activities to be doing within it is a lot like that. You start with a big hunk of clay. You don't really know what you're doing or what's going to fit you. And then you have to just chip away. And the hard work is removing things over and over and over again to leave that core focused, creative output in the middle.
0: As you're saying that, I'm reminded of, and maybe it's just because I'm re-listening to it right now, but I'm reminded of Good to Great and Jim Collins's hedgehog concept as it yes. relates to businesses. Same kind of thing.
1: Yes. Isn't it? What you're good at, what the market needs, and what's can earn it's, money, something it's, like that. It's,
0: it's, it's passion, what you can be best in the world at. And then it's what drives your economic engine, I think, are the three things. The economic yes. engine is the one that's always a little bit wonky to figure out, but it, but it's but it's also just the piece that it's it's very refined and very specific. And that's one of the things that comes up a lot in the case studies he's talking about is how there is a real refinement with these companies about understanding, like, here's what we're, here's what we do. You know, here's who we are and here's our here's our purpose. And I think that's the thing I'm hearing from you is your your kind of path here is been for you to continue to f- to think about that and refine that and do experiments and give yourself permission to have it happen over time.
1: Yes, and to add another metaphor into our mix, Mike McCullough's in his book Clockwork also talks about the queen bee role. That the queen bee mm-hmm. role is it's not the person, it's not the business owner. It's the role. So for example, in my business in the current incarnation is The queen bee role is thought leadership. I wish there was a different term. Sometimes I cringe at that, but essentially one-to-many, what I call ongoing public original thinking. So am I putting new or big or vulnerable ideas out into the world in a one-to-many setting? So for example, one-on-one coaching eventually stopped meeting that mission, at least as an ongoing thing. I just finished a summer long one-on-one Voxer coaching pop-up that by the way is asynchronous coaching, meaning the participants got to submit a question on a Monday through Wednesday, and I would answer up to 15 minute response by the end of day Friday. And this was a win-win because none of us had to have anything on the calendar. Like it actually set both of our time free and people made incredible progress. But beyond that, I realized I would rather, if I have an hour, I'd rather record a podcast episode that thousands of people could listen to than spend so much of my time on -on one-on-one calls that are actually uber private and confidential. And the calls can be really good for developing ideas and figuring out what homework do you assign most often or what problems are people struggling with. So it's not to take away the value of it. But at a certain point, I just realized with limited time and energy my focus really needs to stay on the one-to-many activities, at least that's my current hypothesis.
0: Well, and it's, you know, different things work for different people. Like I, the Voxer coaching as an example of, I think there's some people where they, it's a better because of the fact that it is asynchronous because it's set up in that way. Whereas I think there are people for whom that might not be such a good fit because it's more about the actual conversation and being in the moment and having the conversation evolve And I think both of those are viable. It just really comes back to us continuing to think about who we are, what works for us, and then making deliberate choices about that. And I want to use this as a pivot point to shift into talking about one of the more recent shifts for you. And that's about you moving onto Substack where you've really just moved kind of everything, I think, or at least in the process of doing so. Tell us a little bit about one, what prompted you to decide to do that and how the experience of doing that has been for you.
1: Sure. Well, I had been having Substack FOMO for a while, just kind of looking over the software fence. What's up? What are they up to over there? What are they building? In the beginning, it actually annoyed me because I felt like, oh, great. You're monetizing newsletters. Oh, I've had a newsletter since 2010. Like, I don't need your software. Okay. But then they built this really interesting network of people and they started building out all this interesting functionality like at replying other sub stackers recommending each other having comments being able to restack like share someone's post with your network and these kind of network effects and community elements were very appealing and I had also gotten tired of sending my own newsletters I just I, I never liked the software I was using for the newsletter specifically but the Rest of it was really powerful for powering the whole back end of my business. It had gotten kind of stale. I, I stopped sending my newsletters. I was bored by them. I had stopped reading newsletters because my inbox was just so full of them. I already use a service called SaneBox that puts them up where I don't see them. Why would I send something that I myself am not reading? It just didn't make sense to me. Then in June 2023, so just a couple months ago, I closed out with one of my biggest, most favorite long-term corporate clients. And this was kind of the last straw of really tough three years of the pandemic of really having corporate work, just I call it like the tides of recede, like a tsunami, just all the corporate work, the speaking, everything I had in the calendar just gone and only little trickles would come back. When this client told me they no longer wanted to continue admittedly, I had already launched a book and a podcast called free time for small business owners. So it's not, I have to take responsibility. It's not like I doubled down on pivot 2.0 either, but that news was just so shocking, even though I could have seen it coming that I didn't know what to do except write. So I just started writing the day it happened and I didn't stop. And by that Sunday, I was having brunch with a friend. She was on Substack. I asked her about it. She started helping me brainstorm what I could call mine. We both got out chat GPT on our phones and we came up with rolling in dough, D-O-H with a facepalm emoji that I added later. And rolling in dough is a play on the breadwinner metaphor. It's also still in keeping with trying to call in abundance. Like my brain, my subconscious would hear rolling in dough, but then we'd all hopefully get a chuckle out of D-O-H because we all know what that's like as a business owner. And so my experience of building that, what started as a secret substack, I didn't tell hardly anybody about it except the BFF community. I fell in love with the platform and I fell in love with the community elements. It reminded me of my early days blogging back in 2007, 8, 9. And I was having so much fun and I could really feel the organic growth happening in a way that most newsletters just go to die in someone's inbox. With substack, there's activity around it again. And there's an archive page with previous issues. It all just felt so refreshing. And so, yeah, just a couple short months after that, I decided to move the rest of my 20,000 subscribers from Pivot and FreeTime also over to Substack. And now for the first time maybe ever in 18 years, every single thing I create is in one big feed at substack.com slash at Jenny Blake. So now under my profile all the podcast episodes, even the BFF content that used to just go out to 60 or 70 people nobody knew like about now I can put teasers to my list like there's just so much potential happening that I feel super energized by it
0: It's a really cool platform I have literally just like in the last week moved my my podcast over because um, similarly one having watched what you were doing but two having seen with other people, It feels like a platform that is very well designed for sharing, for connection, for discoverability, but also, and this doesn't get talked about as much as maybe it should, what I'm finding is ease of use.
1: Yes, I found the same thing. And like podcasting is such a good example. I love that you moved yours over because I could never get any listener feedback really because I'm not on social media. And when a podcast goes out to the world, there's really know where to comment on it. Spotify has recently started adding this feature. But with Substack now, there's a comment section for a podcast episode. So how exciting is that? Like people can go engage on your Substack. And yeah, I, I agree. The ease of use, it's so easy. And there's something so streamlined and elegant about it. And how to insert quotes or the paywall break even. I'm having a lot of fun. I feel like it really it's meritocratic in the sense that with a paid subs like rolling in dough, that's all the posts are mostly paid. I choose where the paywall break goes. So I need to write well enough in a compelling enough way that I leave some sort of cliffhanger, then insert the paywall break. And it's very rewarding to see when people end up converting to paid or they join as a result because they want to keep going. And on the flip side of that, it gives me a sense of psychological safety to share more to make it more personal and to make it more interesting because I know that only paying subscribers who really value it are going to see what I'm sharing, not every rando on the internet, not potential corporate clients, unless they decide to pay for my Substack. in which case, welcome. You know, I just feel safer to write and say what I want to say, knowing that it is behind a paywall.
0: I think that's a really good and interesting point because it does it does definitely provide a greater degree of protection or safety there. And related to that, I know you've really been making a very deliberate uh, effort with your posts on rolling in dough, which everyone is a great read. Go check it out because it's it's very real. It's very raw. It's like, here's some reality stuff that we don't hear enough about with people who are doing so or small businesses, but knowing that that's a change for you and what you're sharing and thinking about that happening at the same time where there's, you know, the, the uncertainty as it relates to what's happened in your business with your big client leaving and all of that, that feels like a whole lot of vulnerability to take on at once.
1: Yeah, for sure. Oh gosh. It was so nerve wracking. I basically got it to the point where I wrote f- the first drop of five posts and I scheduled it. They were going to go live on my 12-year anniversary on July 5th. And so I finished writing them two weeks prior. And I honestly did not know if I was just making a huge mistake putting this out there because most business owners, including my past self, would say, of course, you shouldn't broadcast what's going wrong because it will be you'll become a self-fulfilling prophecy where people will see oh oh clients are like closing out or she doesn't have business I'm not going to go there it's like nobody wants to go to the empty restaurant you want to go to the one with the line around the block and I feel like people online especially in the business arena are so used to sharing from the rooftops or like shouting from the rooftops how great they are how much money they make seven figures eight figures how like amazing they are and What no one's talking about is all these, what I call now divine disasters, but the stuff that goes wrong or what do you do when things are really effing hard? And I had just gotten fed up with having three years be really hard, feel like I shouldn't talk about it or I would drive even more business away and really foment the death knell for my business. I just couldn't stand not speaking to what I felt was really going on because every private conversation that I've had all year long, actually for years with other small business owners was how hard it has been. And it felt like I was all of a sudden, not only was I doing a disservice to myself, but doing a disservice to everybody else by not speaking about it. And I finally, when I closed out with my favorite client, I felt like I had nothing to lose anymore. Like I said, as I'm sure you read in one of the posts, if this was a dating situation, a friend would say, read the room. Like, they're just not that into you. So given that, I'm going to stop doing a song and dance for them too, them being corporate. Just like when I left 12 years ago, I had to say, who am I without big, fancy corporate clients? I don't know. But I know that I'm not going to hold myself back anymore out of fear of like scaring them away. And I would rather be honest and tell other business owners how it is. And in fact, so many people have said, thank you so much. This is exactly what I need because I'm very clear on rolling in dough that this is not advice. If you want advice, read free time. <laughs> if you want to know like in, in, in like really tight, nice packaging, what has worked for me and what I recommend, that's great. That has a home, but it's not rolling in dough. At rolling in dough, I just want people to read and feel a sense of relief that they're not alone. And that's what gives me the courage. And it's only 51% courage, as you know, Steve, from one of my posts, 5149. I only have 51% courage to keep going and keep writing about this stuff. It's not a lot, it's just enough to keep going.
0: But that's, I mean, I, I, and I love that 5149 thing. I think it's such an important thing to realize. And w- with all of this, it's so easy with. The current way that so much of what's out there is overly polished, overly pristine, overly filtered, and um, also basically as a result, not very real. And we can get caught up in like, well, but that's not what's going on with me. And so it can be really hard to be more real, more raw. And I love how you figured out a way to do it with the paywall and with having it be private at first right? This is the stepping into vulnerability. And I think there's a real valuable lesson here for people that they could use in approaching any number of things. It's like, it's uncomfortable, but you can do this. And you just kind of keep gradually stretching yourself out further and further and expand. And I think what you're seeing is that, you know, everyone's like, thank God someone named the elephant in the room.
1: Yes. And as you were saying that, it reminds me of getting into a pool. Like the, the first you step in and it's cold and you don't really want to continue. And then you just, you, you got to find ways with something like this, I think. to you're right. Make it comfortable to take a one next step, one next step. You don't have to jump straight into the deep end. So if I had just posted all this publicly, no paywall and launched it to my whole audience at once, I probably would have panicked. But instead, I launched it only to the BFF community and a few friends that's behind the paywall, like every next step, exactly as you said. And then what happened was because I seeded it with such a loving community and group who already knew me well and vice versa, all the comments and feedback in the beginning was really encouraging. And yes, I'm going to say I have a thin enough skin that I needed kind words to get it going and to just think, okay, I am onto something. This is resonating. And it gave me courage to keep going and put it out there now for quote unquote strangers who have still been very wonderful when they write to me. But I don't think I would have had a thick enough skin to kind of expose myself like that so openly without first doing it with a a group. Again, just that felt very respectful.
0: There are places in life where just jumping into the deep end is is fine and, and and dandy, but there are ones where it probably isn't actually a really smart strategy. And I think certainly emotional vulnerability is one. Certainly most things in business are as well. So that I think makes a lot of sense. One other thing I want to wanna note here though is, you know, you were talking about this fear of how people are going to see you. Like, oh my God, you know, Jenny, she's a failure. She lost its big client, all of this kind of stuff. Except that. That's clearly not, one, how people are seeing things. And two, I think that's, again, where we get caught up in our fear distorting our perspective. Because another way of seeing that is, oh, this person who clearly has, I mean, all of this work that they've done, all this that they put out into the world that is quality, interesting, important stuff, who's a good, caring person, is had this thing happen to them. And when we get vulnerable about that, what we're actually doing is giving people a chance to support us. And it sounds like that's some of what you're experiencing.
1: For sure. I would say yes. And the jury is still out. Like, you know, I did schedule a fall event that didn't fill up. And I did have a lingering doubt of, well, yeah, who would go to an event? Who would kind of hire a coach who's openly talking about, what's going wrong? Like, I don't know. There is still part of me that wonders. But I'm also kind of straddling two things right now because what this new thing is enabling is actually a shift in business model where I hope to, across my 3 Substack publications, a dream now that I have that I might not have had before is that subscriptions alone can keep the lights on, not just in the business, but in my household since I am the breadwinner. So, if if it's subscription-based, like my dream is not to be trying to sell events and services unless I really feel like it. And that's where I'm trying to go. So in that sense, it would reward the vulnerable writing, no matter the outcome for filling business-y things.
0: Well, that answers my question about what's next for you that I was going to ask.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, I would, I would be elated to be able to sustain myself from Substack and podcasting alone. And then again, have anything else I do be icing on the cake. And included in Substack is the community, by the way. So now for somebody to join the BFF community, it's just folded right in to free time. And so you can join free time for free as a paying subscriber or a founding member. And that's now BFF. So I'm even experimenting with having the community right there so that it's more present and prominent. And so the community is a really important piece and that's how you and I know each other and and that's really where my heart is because we get to workshop and collaborate at a much more intimate level for uh, fellow heart-based business owners.
0: I think that community is one of those things that's as the people say we're we're also connected at this this point in time and yet not because of how the nature of that connection works and I'm increasingly convinced that Part of that is anytime these communities exceed a certain size or scope, problems start to happen. That's one. I think anonymity is another, but that's one of the things to you know, reference specifically the BFF community and other communities that I've been a part of and that you've you know, done in the past. But with BFF, because of its smallish size, it's you know there's not a ton of people in there, which means... It's people. People know each other. We get to engage and interact inter- directly, and that creates a very different sort of energy that I think is is really important. That's one part. And then another part is just you and what you bring to it as to the environment that you're creating and facilitating. But I think community is really, really powerful. And I'm curious to see with Substack involved now how you're going to continue to refine that aspect of what you do.
1: Thank you. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And it's interesting. Like BFF has this kind of set point. I guess some would call it a plateau. But in a way, I think of it, it's always at its perfect size, no matter what. And it is usually about sixty to seventy five people. I don't know if we've ever had over a hundred. And like you said, there's something nice about that because you can know people's names. And of those, I totally welcome lurkers, people who just want to listen in recordings and, not be super active. I'm usually a lurker in any communities that I join, but it's fun. It's nice because I, again, I just create what I, what I need as well. When I join communities, I'm very shy. I don't want to jump in. I, I feel shy to post anything, especially if it's a question or a challenge to too many people. So I I kind of like when things are small and even when they're small, I would still be shy to post. So I really admire everybody who jumps in and introduces themselves or posts asking a question or or helps other people in the comments too. The one thing I'm not sure is how it will work cuz Substack facilitates commenting and interacting with each other. And so now we can be doing that in Substack and in Circles. So that's the only question mark I have is hmm is that how are those two going to work together? And we shall see.
0: So for people who are interested in learning more about you and what you're doing is would you say that like your substack is probably the the best jumping in point at this point to to find you and find what you're about
1: yeah wildly enough if you go to substack.com slash at jenny blake it's all there for your perusal so you can see what resonates and explore everything that i create everything that i publish and if you just want to learn more about free time if you are a business owner that's at itsfreetime.com
0: And I'll link all that in the show notes, of course. And there's yeah, there's just a lot of really good material. So definitely go check out her substack and look around because there's so many different things. Like I said, there's there's I'm sure there's probably something for you, whoever you are, as it relates to business, or then it might be like me and you just end up listening to her reading all of it. So anyway, Jenny, thank you so, so much for for taking the time to be on the podcast and for sharing. Know, your experience and, and your learning there's a lot of things here i think that'll be really valuable for folks so i appreciate you coming on
1: well thank you steve i really appreciate all the great questions and it's such a joy to be here thank you for having me and asking about all the new stuff it's very refreshing and big thanks to everybody who's here with us listening